Hey, Sales Enablement Podcast listeners. Today, we'd like to introduce you to another show by Revenue.io. It's the all-new and reimagined RevOps Podcast, where we are interviewing and working with some of the world's thought leaders around sales engagement, sales enablement, and all things go-to-market. Join me, I'm Alistair Wilcock, Chief Strategy Officer at Revenue.io, along with our prestigious founder and CEO, Howard Brown, as we interview, talk, and ideate about not just how to help sellers sell, but how to help buyers buy. And here's a special episode for you. If you like what you hear, join us and subscribe to the RevOps Podcast. I'm Alistair Wilcock. This is the RevOps Podcast with myself and Howard Brown. As you recall, last episode, we focused on FOMO is dead and are you ready to sell using customer value creation? I'm super excited to back welcome part two today with Brent Adamson, one of my personal friends and one of the best thought leaders in this space. Just for reference, to remind everybody, Brent Adamson, former Distinguished Vice President of Gartner, now global head of research at Communities Eco. You know, he's the pioneer, but one of the co-authors of Challenger Sale, uh, Challenger Customer, and, and quite arguably for the better part of two decades has been the go-to thought leader for sales leaders around the world. So we're very excited to have him with us. Howard, Brent, welcome back to part two. Thank you, Alistair. Excited to be here. All right, so I left us on a bit of a cliffhanger last time. Well, we were talking about you know, how do we engage with rational buyers and customer value creation. And we, we all agreed we need to do this. We all agreed that there's mechanisms to do it in terms of shifting from the I motions to the we motions in terms of the importance of data, bringing it all together, you know, benchmarking moments, and this idea of continuous value creation, that we, we're always doing it. But we left with the question of, we're all nodding our heads going, yes, but Brent, like you and I chat with a lot of sales leaders around the world, and they all go, well, that's really interesting. That sounds wonderful. But you know what? I gotta figure out how to get my reps to sell a little bit more. I want to understand, you know, how to drive up a little bit of quota. Like it always falls back to this just tactic of like the checklist of sales leadership to-dos instead of making these transformational shifts that really are going to move the company ahead. What's your experience in that? And then we'll talk how we actually do this. A um, couple of thoughts on that, Alistair. The, this idea of moving towards uh, a value approach or a value-based approach um, that, that I, I've been watching, I think really it's really interesting. The the, the, again, as I mentioned last time we talked, there's there's a number of C-suite officers have value in their title, or it's value engineers. There's you know particularly large tech companies are hiring a large number of value consultants or value experts. What I, you know what I'm seeing? I, I imagine you guys are seeing the same thing. Is the rise of a whole new function in the commercial space? Very. It's, it feels like value today is kind of where customer success was about six years ago. I remember when it kind of came out of nowhere, and now it's like everywhere and it's these big functions. And it, it strikes me is the last thing that we all need right now, particularly if you're a head of sales or head of marketing, is yet one more function inside the commercial space. And so it, it just it seems to me like we're, we're very close to being on a just desperately wrong path of creating the value management office or the value management function that sits alongside of sales. Now we got sales, marketing, service, success, value. 
like how are you going to wrap your brain around that? So I think that the thing that I think we need to get to, if I, you know, as I kind of go out and sort of carry this value flag now, is is not using is using the term discipline. I think that's really, and I think to Alistair, that's where you're at too, is what we're really talking about here is creating an organizational wide, or at least commercial organization, if you want to limit it to that, an organizational wide discipline around engaging your customers around dimensions of value that you collaboratively define as most important to that relationship. And then you can, of course, do that with software. You can do that other ways, but, but you, you can imagine how yeah, you do that through marketing and demand gen, you do that through digital engagement, which is also marketing. You do that through sales reps, virtually and in person, which would be sales. You do that at the renewal time, which is probably success. Yeah, you do that at the expansion time, which is uh, account management. But and you may do that with experts, which is a center of excellence. But I, I think the thing that we, we we have to solve for isn't like the roles or the people or the titles. The thing we have to solve for is how do I create almost like a DNA inside my company such that we think every engagement with our customers from way up funnel to way down funnel implementation and beyond is defined around uh, or, or is organized around this definition of, uh, of value. And this is Alistair where it's like, you know, academically, which I get accused of sometimes of talking that way, is like, it makes a lot of sense. It's logical. Practically, holy smokes, right? I mean, it's like, the, 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 I put an article in HBR back in January, which I didn't title, by the way, this is our friends at HBR title, which is the uh, sales and marketing are becoming obsolete, right? And that thing just exploded uh, with a lot of attention. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing story of, of a company called Smart Technologies and how they've effectively dismantled their entire commercial organization and remantled it or reorganized it around customer buying jobs. And it's brilliant what they've done at Smart. And most organizations look at that story of what's going on at Smart and they say, hey, great for them. I can never do that. Right, and I think that's where we're going to wind up. If I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little concerned with this idea of value and value management. Is like, what we're talking about is all these things are easy to say and hard to do around cross-discipline, cross-silo collaboration, more effective uh, organizations. Uh, you know, breaking down silo barriers. I, I've yet to find a person who raises their hand and says we don't need to break down silo barriers. But I've yet to find a person who raises their hand and says that's super easy. I'll do it next week either. So it's. Uh, so we're in this interesting situation where the right answer, the best answer is, is also, I don't know what the hardest, but one of the hardest, you know what that tells me is the first mover advantage here is, a, is massive. The company that's got the, either the, the, the creativity, the bravery, the, uh, the, the, just the, the skills to adopt this kind of posture and move there and not all the way, at least quickly in that direction is going to have a massive advantage over those who look at it and say, I can never do that. I, I, I agree. So let me, uh, couple comments on yeah. this. One, I, I agree academically it's it's a lot, but I always just challenge people to say, you don't have to make it that hard. I always say start, <laughs> totally start, fair. With, yeah. start with two things, right? And, and let's use smart technologies as that example, right? Like if I, I'm going to really simplify down all of what they did. Yeah. In my mind, they took two things. Hey, I got a sales process. I have a way in which I create revenue. And I, gotta, and I have these steps and I have these teams I engage from marketing, my selling, my customer success side, there's all those things, right? And every company does. And I think every company would say, yes, I have that. I know what that is. You go, great. The part two I want you to do is now take that, that line and just tell me what's, what's the buying process of a customer. Now that, that question always falls apart a little because yeah. people often don't know what the buying process is, but we can map a buying process. Brent, you know, pre-gardener, you did CEB. That was, that was a big thing, like buyer journey mapping. 
is functionally done. You can go to your marketing team and have them map a buying process. So, okay, good. So, so you got the two. Now, they don't line up ever. And that's okay. I say, that's fine. Don't try to line them up because you're never going to get it to line up. It's going to be way too hard. Instead, ask yourself across those two lines, where do I have an intersection point that stalls or doesn't go as well as I want, that, is, that takes a little longer or has friction to the buyer? And once I know that, then I always say, okay, now we know that. Ask, can I automate that step? Can I improve upon that functional step? And if the answer is I can, but it, you know, now there's a cost and impact of that, we got to rationalize that against adding a person. But you, you simply just start whack-a-moling down all these pieces. Because if you try to reinvent your entire go-to-market, you'll miss all of the upside in the market that you're talking about in first mover advantage. I think that's right. I think on pieces of that, I can suddenly drive real functional improvement, right? Like I can take my head to sales and say, look, now I know those friction points across buy and sell process and I'm defining where I can improve value. Maybe that is on the front end of a sales engagement. And you know what? That can give me faster, continuous engagement. Like we talked about last episode, continuous proof of value. Maybe I can ramp my reps, you know, three times faster than my competitor. That's clearly going to be a big thing. And, and so forth. So I think breaking down across those two things is is so critical and important and then automated. And it's not like that's some pipe dream. That's what, that's what companies like us and others do now, right? Like you literally ingest and find those friction points and automate it. And that now takes the behavior insight. You know, the, on, that, on that point, the, um, and, and Howard, I, I want to obviously get your thoughts on this too. So the, uh, the, when, we, when we lay it out like that, I find a lot of companies will particularly on the marketing side, or, or you know, the, the, if you have one, a CX team, a customer experience team, will often do that exercise that you just laid out. And, and when they hear friction points, they're looking for friction points between the customer company and our company. Where are we hard to interact with? Where are we hard to, you know, where is our information overwhelming? Where are our sales reps not very responsive or whatever? I mean, where is our website confusing? So they look for friction between the in that boundary spanning world between the customer company and our company. Uh, where I've landed so much in the work that I've done, I think is really uh, equally interesting. If, in some ways, I think even more compelling is where are friction points, not between you and the customer, but within the customer organization itself. So when you think of all those different stakeholders that are involved in a customer con in a purchase conversation, a purchase decision, which you could go for on, for months, right? And by the way, if you ask them, how do you feel about engaging in a purchase decision with your colleagues? They all say the same thing. I know because I've asked thousands of this. It's awful. I hate it. It's frustrating. It's all, you know, it takes forever. It's, I, I would never want to do that again. And so that, that's a really interesting thing to do is look for those moments of friction, not between them and us, but among them, right? So where, who should they have gotten involved in? They didn't. Who, had, who raised questions they couldn't answer? And then I think it becomes our, a really interesting opportunity for us to proactively do what we can to make that process easier for them. So it's not just easier to deal with us, but easier to deal with each other. And this goes back, Howard, to your point about being a clinical psychologist, right? It's like, it's, it's a lot of, you weren't trying to make your, your patients easier to work with you. You're trying to help them make them easier to work with each other, right? And I think that's that same metaphor kind of that, and, and there's huge value in that because you made a career out of that, right? It's like, there's value in the role that we play as a supplier, as a guide, as a coach, to helping customers be maybe just a little less dysfunctional, a little bit more confident in their ability just to decide and interact with each other. 
Yeah, there's so much there to unpack. The that you started talking about discipline, and I think discipline is such a powerful word that encapsulates what's needed in every area of a business to deliver that value. Right? You 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 absolutely need discipline. And the question is, where can I apply that discipline that will yield the best possible result? So the first thing I need to do is I need to analyze what will move the needle the most, right? And I think with software, with studying, whatever it is, there's evidence that we have people who are high performers based on certain things or disciplines that they have, certain processes. Everybody has playbooks, right? The problem is with the playbook, just like anything, are you really multivariate testing your playbook to figure out in what context is it most effective? Because sales, relationships, life is dynamic and constantly changing with different variables. That's where the challenge becomes, right? So how do we identify where we apply that discipline? I tend to use sports analogies. I'll give you one. Um, if you play golf and you decide that you want to go talk to the golf pro and you have a new golf pro and you start with him and he gives you the 14 things you need to change about your golf swing. You know what happens to your golf score? It gets worse. <laughs> it goes through the roof. Yeah. We try and apply that same thing to, well, going back to our relationships. I have a conversation with my wife and here's the nine things that she needs to change to better deal with me. I'm How's sure that, that goes work? over well. How's that <laughs> hey, work honey, here's you, nine right? things you need to fix. <laughs> right. Now, if I'm, if I'm effective, I'm trying to do, sort through that list and say, wait a minute. Yes, let's look at that as our goal. We want to work on nine things. And by the way, she's got 21 for me to work on, right? Not going to happen. So let's figure out what is the most important thing that we can work on. And we could do that through data. We can look at that by looking at your team, by looking at other teams. Like this isn't, we don't have to run analytics. Just get started. Let's look at what are the two, three, four things that are small changes, whether it's, hey, your example, do we have the right internal processes? I have a sales leader that I've worked with that is brilliant and he is 100% convinced with data that if his sales reps bring an opportunity to the table at over 50%, but there hasn't been a single meeting with a sales engineer involved, he immediately strikes that back down to 25%, right? Because his experience is, unless those internal processes are aligned, this deal is probably not over 50%. So it's not only internal processes, it's external. So what's beautiful about technology today is if you instrument across what you're doing and you're able to identify those areas where you need to apply the most discipline that will create the greatest amount of change. These minor 2% changes across multiple processes has a synergistic effect and delivers exponential value. It's just we can't change everything at once. It's disruptive. It's change management. And it won't happen. So, so I want to interject there. Again, you know, the, in the spirit of not being too academia, agreed. Now let's just role play out an average head of sales, a CRO out there, CSO, something like that. Again, I think they'll say, great, yes, fine. But 
That sounds like an ERP deployment to me, right? Now we're both the SaaS companies, Brent, you, we're a SaaS company. This to me is why people need to leverage SaaS organizations, POG led organizations, right? It is now taking product that shifts that incremental value in with a speed coefficient with it. Because if you can't get this done, and I would say, you know, back to customer value creation, if you can't prove that value in 90 days or under, why wouldn't I just add more headcount? Wouldn't I just throw more bodies at it given the opportunity of it? And and I think in this market, um, you know, Brent, you and I bantered around this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's probably what they would have done six months ago. Now, Can't do it. I don't know that they had the choice. So now the choice is, well, either I cut or I need a way to apply what we're talking about in a fast incremental lift way. So to you both, I, you know, how, how, how are you seeing that address in terms of the speed piece of, the, of this? Howard, do you want to go first? Yeah, well, I mean, I throw it back to you. I, really, Alistair, you were a gardener, vice president, senior guy there. You saw all the technologies, talked to all the sales leaders. You joined Revenue.io. How long does it take for us to give customers value and to get them up and implemented? Uh, sub 45 days. Yeah, less than 45 days. Most see it in proof of value within 30 days, which is going to exactly my point, Howard. If if anybody is considering addressing this via technology these days, like if you can't rationalize it in that time period, and then Brent, to your point, and I think what happens really well in the customer value management space is the ongoing then continuous month to month proof of value and uplift of it you're just not going to get there. I do not think we are in an economic climate where the heads of sales will tolerate, you know, these longer duration, big ticket lifts um, that are there. I'll just add, sorry, Brent, before you no, jump No, no, go in, ahead. All right. No, that's all right. Super passionate, excited here. <laughs> Look, I talk to sales leaders all the time, right? They're under immense pressure, right? Climate's changed, macroeconomics. They can't miss their quarter. They can't miss this quarter. They need to change the trajectory of this quarter. They need now. If they miss another quarter or two quarters, they could lose their job. Wall Street's not patient with people missing their earnings anymore. We're not at growth at any cost. So I need change now and I need it to happen. I don't need months and months of data exercise. I don't need change management. I don't need tons of operations people. I need you to come in and help me with my situation because if you don't, I don't have time to even talk to you. So we have to talk about delivering that value in the shortest period of time. The decisions you need to make need to be faster cycle, implementable more quickly, uh, but you, you need to make them with a view in the context of the fact that the world is changing, the, the commercial world is changing. Buyers are buying radically different. Alistair, you set it up. We still haven't knocked it down. The fact that, you know, this crazy data that shows that customers don't want to talk to sales reps at all, right? I mean, it's like, what do you do in that world, right? It's a, and by the way, when they don't talk to customer, your sales reps, they're actually worse off. So it's like this really bizarre world that's evolving in, in buying, if not selling right now. 
And we're going to have to change with it. We're going to have to think about things like org structure. We're going to have to think about things that have that are hard to do. That are going to take long-term investments. But to your point, Howard, it's always true in sales. Of course, we've got a quarterly number, and that the urgency of the round that quarterly number today is higher than ever before. So I think that's uh, if, for any head of sales listening right now. I think the mindset's got to be: How can I make short-term, very quick, precision bets that will simultaneously set me up will future proof me down the road so i don't it's like so if you're just playing reactionary role it's like just like throw more bodies at it which no one can do right now with the climate you know with the with with the economy but uh, i'm gonna put a specialist on this so i'm gonna do some sort of band-aid approach you may have solved the short-term problem but you're nowhere near to solving for the long-term change and so that i guess that'd be my last piece of advice like what are the short-term quick hit things i can do now that also position me for success in a very different world a year from now, and that's where I land with you guys. It's that's it, whether it's SaaS. It, there's a lot of SaaS companies out there that can't help, but there's a lot that can. And I think to your point, Alistair, the learning curve is quicker, right? So you can you can cycle your learning much faster in this world, and that's that's I think what what everyone's going to have to do um, going forward, and just understand, you know, what are we even trying to accomplish? That's that's where again I just keep gravitating back to this idea of value. It's like like let's just sit down, brass tacks, and define the dimensions of value that we're trying to achieve that, that we want to measure ourselves on. And, and mm-hmm. so that, there you go. Couldn't agree more guys. Thank you so much. I'm going to close on this final thought and comment for us. And that is, you know, Salesforce recently came out, uh, funny enough, Brent, another former colleague of ours, Tiffany Boba, for those who remember her, had a great statement that uh, the amount of money an average seller is prepared to pay for sales management advice did, did you hear what the number is, Brent, no, by terms? I don't know. Well, do, do you, I, I don't know too much on the spot, but do you want to take a guess at how much an average rep is prepared to pay for advice from their sales managers? From their sales manager or from a great sales manager? <laughs> <laughs> from, from their, from from their, their sales, sales manager. manager. Their uh, sales manager. Well, that's got to be close to zero. It's either, it's, either, it's either a small amount or a huge amount. I don't know which way this story goes. I'm sorry, but uh, I'm going to go small amount. That's a good guess. A dollar. There you a go. A dollar is what it comes back with, okay? Yeah. The other interesting number is, um, you know, Howard and I were interviewing somebody else recently, and, and we were looking in terms of value, the buyer's state they get from seller interactions. Yeah. Okay. And, and overall, 93% of executive buyers say their interaction with sellers are, quote, useless. So we got sellers that aren't prepared to pay for any help, and we got buyers that saying the interaction I have is useless. And we wonder why you see the rise of these self-service models. And so I know I'm setting up a provocative statement here for, for everybody here, but look, as we think about that, sales leaders today have to think about how they apply value back to their sellers that the seller wants to use and can use, right? 100%. And that ultimately has to tie into customer value creation, brand exactly what you're working on, where that team is going, creation to the buy side that is relevant and timely on it. If we don't hit that, we're never going to get people off of spending a dollar and we're going to have most people saying interactions are useless. Brent, love to have you back to lean on that again. Future, we will be fantastic. You're such a great thought leader in this. Before we let Brent go, wait. Before we let Uh-oh. Brent go, Brent. Yes. You jo- you joined Ecosystem Software. How do our listeners get in touch with you? 
Um, I have no idea. No, this, so it's the, <laughs> that would have been kind of funny. The marketer would have killed me. With the, um, so we're at ecosystems.us is our website where you can find out more about this. We actually run a customer community called the um, Customer Value Community, CVC. Um, and you can find out more about that on our resources tab on our website and sign up. We run a, a Slack community. I'm in there every day asking really provocative questions, providing perspectives. And we run a webinar series. Um, so there's a number of ways. And I'm, of course, on LinkedIn. That's the easiest thing to just find me on LinkedIn and I can guide you to all that. But I'm um, super excited. I, for what it's worth, and this, I mean this quite sincerely, I legitimately am learning along with all of anyone else who's in this new value space. Again, I've been adjacent to it and my eyes are kind of open. I, I knew it was important, but wow. Uh, and it's just nothing but upside for everyone involved here to get really smart on this idea. And I'll, I'll go on that journey with you and we'll learn together. It'll be super fun. Fantastic. That's awesome. Brent, it was great having you. Huge fan of Challenger Sale. Huge fan of your research at Gartner. Thanks, Thank you for joining Alistair and I. Really appreciate it. 100%. Thanks, guys. See you all. Bye.